design thinking leans into divergent thinking, which temporarily abandons the how and focuses just on what's possible. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is Danielle Crane. She's the Senior Director of HR at OneStream Software. She has a background in both the for-profit and non-profit worlds, but what really sets her apart is her use of design thinking. It's not a new way of doing things, but it's rare to see in the HR space. You'll hear Danielle describe what design thinking is and why it's so useful for her HR professionals. Let's dive right in. Danielle Crane, welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, before we get into you, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to give some credit and a big shout out to Tina Marie Woolfield. Without Tina, this our relationship wouldn't have happened. So I want to I want to thank Tina Marie. And how do you know Tina Marie, by the way? She's delightful. She and I are both very active in the Metro Detroit HR community. So we met through HR Unite. And she's just a phenomenal human. She really is. Can you tell me a little bit about HR Unite? Let's give them a plug too. Sure. Yeah. So HR Unite is uh, an organization originally, I think they started out in Metro Detroit, but don't quote me on that. And it is a kind of celebrating all the HR awesomeness. So HR Unite brings strong HR professionals uh, in a geographic area together for good conversation, learning, connection, job networking, you name it. HR Unite brings us together for that. That is a beautiful thing. All right. Thank you, Tina Marie. <laughs> yes. Uh, so before we get started, do you mind giving an overview of uh, you know, who you are and a little bit about your background? Of course. So I am the Senior Director of Global HR for OneStream Software. OneStream provides an intelligent finance platform for a business. So our software reduces the complexity of financial operations, bringing the planning, financial close, and consolidation and reporting and analytics into a single solution. So we're a global organization, about 550 employees worldwide. I joined about seven weeks ago. So I am relatively new and was brought in to really scale their global HR function. Prior to that, I spent, uh, gosh, the last 15 years split between two organizations serving as the head of people for a national not-for-profit and a fintech company. Interesting. So what was the difference from nonprofit to for-profit? What was the biggest difference? At the end of the day, I found kind of flipping back between the two that it's really about the people that you're working with and how much they want to move the business forward. And that same drive 
was there in Green Path as it is in the for-profit. Love it. And it's always about the people. So mm-hmm. true. You nailed it right there. So speaking of the people, I got to tell you, it's it was fun, not only just kind of getting to know you, but then kind of reading up on you. And there's so much consistency in terms of what people are saying about you, your professionalism, your energy, your passion, your good judgment. It was a lot of fun. I got to tell you. So I'm looking forward to also getting to know you more here and also providing an opportunity for those that are listening to get to know you. So I've got this section that I call rapid fire, where I like to ask a couple quick questions just to try to give people a better feel for you. Are you ready for rapid fire? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Danielle, would you consider yourself an introvert, an extrovert, or would you somewhere uh, toggle in between it like a, a centrovert or an ambivert? I'm going to go with extrovert. I find humans super interesting and I get a lot of energy from learning from others. Yeah, I'm the same way. And it was great to see on your LinkedIn profile that you're an ENTJ like myself. Yeah, so I guess I know that I'm an extrovert, right? Because the test told me so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't feel like I need to ask you this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you see your glasses uh, half empty or half full? Full. I mean, in fairness, through COVID, with a two-year-old at home and a full-time job, it might have been half full of wine at times, but still full. (laughs) And I'm kidding. In all seriousness, though, I do seriously believe in the power of gratitude and curiosity. The brain science even confirms that the practice of gratitude kind of triggers that positive response in our limbic system. Mm -hmm. And that leads to things like creativity and innovation, replaces things like fear and doubt. So I'm pretty cool with that. I love that. And you really touched on a lot of things that are near and dear to me. I am just not a fan of the scarcity mindset. It does not serve you. Is this something that's natural to you? Something that you practice? It's like habitual that you practice? Something that you're just interested in? I think it's both. I think I'm grateful that there is that sense within me, but it is something that I'm also very intentional about. Have you ever watched the Simon Sinek clip where he talks about the London Olympics? No, and I am a Sinek fan, so I don't know how I use that. Yeah, so he it's a short clip, and he talks about when he was watching the London Olympics, he was really getting annoyed that all the reporters kept asking the same question of these incredible athletes, right? And they would ask, like, are you nervous or were you nervous? And every single athlete responded with, no, I'm excited. Like, I was excited because they're in the Olympics. And so when you break it down, the physiological symptoms between nervous and excited are the same. You start to visualize the future, your hands get clammy, your heart starts to race. And so these amazing athletes like had learned to interpret what their body was telling them as excitement and not nerves. And so I think for some reason that analogy just really resonates with me. And so when I start to feel anxious about something, I really try to shift my brain into thinking about the opportunity. That's fantastic. I wish more people, I'm going to look that up because I'm I'm a big fan of that. I've heard that, not that the London uh, athletes, but I've heard similar mm-hmm. studies. So pretty cool. Big shout out to Simon Sinek too. Uh-huh. He deserves it. <laughs> yeah, he does. Tell me a habit that you have, good, bad, or indifferent. I end every day with a clean desk. So which in turn means that I start every day with a clean desk. That's Throughout it. the day, I'm constantly referencing different books or resources, or I'm jotting down ideas and post-it notes. And so by the end of the day, this place looks like a war zone. But I found that it's totally worth that five or 10 minute investment to clean it and start with a blank slate the next day. That is a great habit. Is something you've always done, something you learn from somebody? I think I've just always done it. Yeah, I can't. I think I've always done it. 
So does your company have a clean desk policy? Not that matters now with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact, I've actually never been in one of our offices. <laughs> so sure that I could tell you. <laughs> yeah. uh, have you ever worked though within an organization that had a clean desk policy? Yeah. So I worked at the nonprofit that I worked for was uh, heavily regulated. And so we did have a clean desk policy. So I was adherent. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they're happy. You're like the poster child for that. Perfect. <laughs> uh, tell me something that most people don't know about you. I'm a speed reader. It's a super helpful quality, but I do have to trick my brain if there's something really complex that I need to slow down and absorb. So I have like an index card handy and I just physically force myself to move down the page slower and get my brain to read every word. Wait, so... so- is it something that you taught yourself or you just are no. a natural speed reader? No. So when I was in this class, like in elementary or middle school, they taught us how to speed read as part of an, an, an enrichment program. And so, yeah, it's funny. I'm incredibly grateful for it because it does allow me to move quickly through content. Wow. So is this something that you're hoping that your son has an opportunity to get exposed to or will you expose him to that? Oh, I'd have to figure out how they taught me. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like I said, it's a big asset. I, it can be a curse and that my natural inclination is to move through content too quickly sometimes. So I've just learned different habits to slow myself down when I need to. Yeah, I mean, you can always go back. I'm the guy that takes an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. So <laughs> it would be awesome to be able to speed read. It's something yeah. which I've tried and I know you were going to really stick with it to be able to yeah. do it. But I think that's a great skill. So, so kudos to you. So I'd love to talk to you. You mentioned in a conversation that we had last week, you were talking to me about design thinking. And that is something that I thought was super cool. And I'd love to delve more into. Do you mind for hoping that there's, I'm not the only person that wasn't as familiar with design thinking. Can you give an overview of what it is? So Design thinking really is like an iterative process that challenges assumptions that we all have. So humans are hardwired to have assumptions and judgment. And so design thinking is a practice that really encourages us to seek to understand and look at problem solving through a different lens. So that's a lot of fancy words, but it's really about putting the user at the center and understanding what barriers they might face. So an example, so often in HR, it is easy to default to judgment. This employee didn't do this because of this. People aren't completing their open enrollment elections on time because they just don't care. Well, no, people actually really care about the benefits that are available to them and their family. But sometimes I think as HR people, our desire to make everybody happy by providing five different plan options to our employees actually paralyzes people, you know, into not making a decision. And so they might not be avoiding open enrollment because they're lazy, but rather we've provided them so much information that they've entered into a kind of decision paralysis. Any confirmation bias have anything to do with any in design thinking? A little bit, yeah. It could come into play. Is there any criticism around design thinking? For sure. Um, I think design thinking at its best throws out the well-vetted PowerPoints, favors <laughs> giant sticky pads and post-it notes. And so... I think many of us were raised on PowerPoint and coached to believe that we need to be an expert at all times. And design thinking, that's not the case. You're actually rewarded for not being an expert on a subject. Design thinking embraces post-it notes because they aren't permanent, right? They're simply a record of an idea that could be moved or modified or cast aside at any moment without you know, much uh, investment capital. So, And design thinking also embraces the concept of fail fast. 
and recognizes that people need a safe space to try out an idea without having to prove it immediately. I think that people are uncomfortable with failure. So I think that there's some criticism that design thinking can feel unpolished or maybe even childish at times. How did you learn this? How did you get involved in this? Yeah, about four years ago, I was lucky to gain a new CEO in my previous organization, and she had studied design thinking under some of the best. And so she came in and really encouraged our organization to adopt design thinking practices and even supported myself going to the Luma Institute to become a certified practitioner of design thinking. And so it's a little bit of luck and a lot of love. I just immediately took to it. Mm. What were some of the things that really attracted you to it? I think in I've spent so much of my career in HR chasing people (laughs) to do the stuff they're supposed to do. (laughs) And maybe not a lot of time really reflecting on the environment that I was designing for them. And so as I got deeper into design thinking, really started to see some reward in designing a different experience or different process that removed barriers for people that simply were unknown to me. And so, yeah, I just, I fell in love with the idea of designing, ending up with the ultimate solution, but I don't like chasing people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they don't like to be chased. And so it's been fun, I think, to think about how we might design things differently. Can you walk me through an example of something, some experience that you've had, the way that it was, and then how it ended up when you were done? Yeah. So I'll give you two. In my previous organization, we used design thinking to evaluate the effectiveness of our new hire onboarding. So we knew that we had some pain points based on user feedback. And without design thinking, I think we likely would have spent, I don't know, 12 to 18 months blowing it up and designing a whole new process. And instead, we used a tool called journey mapping to map out the highs and lows our users, meaning our new hires, were experiencing. And that helped us to really hone in on the specific parts of the new hire process rather than taking the entire thing on as a huge overhaul. It also helped us identify what was working really well in our current process so that we could do more of that. When I think back and if we had revamped the whole process, it's possible that we could have accidentally gotten rid of what was working. And so we were able to, you know, prototype and test some ideas that led to some quickly implemented improvements versus, again, kind of taking the whole thing on. So is this design thinking something that any company can do or is it better suited for smaller organizations, larger organizations? I don't think this is size or or industry contingent. I think it's more about mindset. I think if your team is willing to admit that we don't have all the answers and that there's opportunity in the how might we space, then I think any organization could tackle this. So could you walk me through, let's use the example you used before, that maybe there's five different choices for benefits. Mm -hmm. How would you go about implementing this design thinking to change the different types of benefits that you're offering? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I'll always encourage when you're taking on design thinking is to find a good partner. Pairing is strongly encouraged in design thinking because it gets us out of our own insular thinking. There's five phases. So the first phase is empathize. Um, This isn't like put forward an empathy statement, right? This is really about helping to understanding our users, immersing ourselves in what they're experiencing. So for example, if open enrollment was our challenge, meaning that people are waiting until the absolute last second or they're missing the deadline and they're coming back to us afterwards, you know, giving us some sub story about why they missed the deadline, 
empathy might look like us actually going through the open enrollment process as a true user. So we whip through it as HR professionals because we built the system, all of that. We might even choose to sit down and observe five to 10 employees and how they work through the open enrollment process. We may choose to interview them of what they're finding easy, what they're, what barriers they're facing. Uh, we might ask information about their family choices and learn more about what barriers they might be facing. I, I worked with an organization once that did their open enrollment in November. That was dramatically causing pain points because the majority of the world gets an open enrollment kicked off in October. And so this family was being forced to kind of choose between the lack of information. Uh, we wouldn't have known that unless we'd gone to our users and, and really spoken with them. So empathy really is about just understanding our users and where they're at. The second stage is define. And so in the define stage, we're unpacking everything that we've learned about our users in the empathy stage. And we're establishing a problem statement. So what are we ultimately trying to solve for? And in this particular case, it was, you know, how do we get people to make confident benefit elections? So when you describe this, how do I get better benefits within my five options? We couldn't go in with the decision of how do I reduce the number of benefit plans I have? We went in saying, how do I make open enrollment a valuable experience for our employees and one that they will do on time, right? And so that was ultimately what we were trying to solve for. Now, the third is ideate. Um, ideate is about generating as many diverse ideas as possible. That's the really that's fun stage. Notes. Yeah, and your ideas can be awful and they could still add value. So like that's the, the goal during the ideation stage really is to diverge into as many ideas as possible. And then the fourth stage is is prototyping. So taking some ideas into the real world um, with the goal of learning more about your potential solutions. And so what I love about prototyping is it can be really light. It isn't something that you would roll out to your entire workforce, right? You might pick a subsection of your workforce. And so, yeah. And then the final is the testing phase, which is really our chance to gather feedback on our prototype and maybe refine our solutions or go back out with another prototype. So you'll see, again, it's a very iterative process that you the goal is learning. I mean, this sounds extremely thorough. Is there a time frame that you have in mind per project? Or is there kind of like a rule of thumb that doesn't matter what it is, it should take three months, six months, nine months, whatever that time frame is? Oh, yeah. I mean, it can take like a couple of days. The goal, so constraints, the idea, the power of constraints is really guiding principle within design thinking. So that can be the hardest. As HR professionals, we like to go deep, we like to be thorough, we like order, you know, putting those constraints in place and making sure that we don't go too deep is really valuable. That's why like the post-it note is a great example of a constraint. You can only write so much on a post-it note. And we typically do it with Sharpies versus a pen. So you can't cheat and get a novel on there, right? You're supposed to be moving quickly and yeah. I mean, it seems very strategic. Why is it is design thinking referred to as outside the box thinking? Good question. I think historically, specific in the HR field, you know, our work has favored convergent thinking, you know, very linear, systematic. As I mentioned, HR people really like order and want to understand the how of everything. Design thinking leans into divergent thinking, which temporarily abandons the how and focuses just on what's possible. I'm sure, are you familiar with the paperclip study? Remind me. Okay. So I think it's back from like 2010, 2011 is when it was published. And 
is all about this concept of divergent thinking. So researchers gave participants at various ages a paperclip and just asked them to list like all of its possible uses. So like at age five or six, participants came up with 200 plus uses right, for a paperclip. And then by the time the participant reached early adulthood, they could come up with 10 or 15. And so practicing design thinking, I think, really means committing to living in the how might we space. And that's uncomfortable sometimes, you know, because as we get older, we probably live less in that how might we stage. So I think it, it is helpful to know, though, that there is both convergence and divergence built into the design thinking process. You know, ideation, like we talked about earlier, is all about the divergence, right? Define is all about the convergence. What a shame that we think that the older we get, the less creative we get. Oh, I know. It's depressing, isn't it? Oh, it is. I know, but think about like your favorite four-year-old, right? What's their favorite question? Why? Right? So Um. true. And it's so interesting. Uh, Sorry to go off topic a little bit, but my wife and I, we were just talking about this the other day about how we live right by school so we can hear kids and all the screams and their laughter. And it's just like, like, it's like therapeutic. We'll just sit out on our balcony and we'll listen. And yeah, it is. And then and we're like, God, if you just think about it. When can an adult just run out and just start screaming or yelling? And just like, think about how good that is. And then yesterday I was reading how I think they're doing now trips in Iceland where they're taking people where they can go. I don't know if you've ever been to Iceland or not, but there's these mm-hmm. massive, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool place to go, but they're bringing people to like canyons and they're just having them yell. You know, that's delightful. Yeah, I love free. that. Yeah, and it's unleashing creativity. They're freeing themselves. So it's uh, so maybe you do your next design thinking in Iceland. That's your next trip. What are some great resources, books, programs, or out there for those that like what they've heard today and they'd like to learn more and and start potentially or potentially bring this into their organization? What would you recommend? Yeah. So. One of the coolest things about design thinking is that it's primarily open source content. One of the greatest resources I found is the D school, the design school at Stanford has an amazing PDF download called the design thinking bootleg. If you just Google it, you'll find it. And that walks you through the five stages of design thinking that I walked you through earlier. And it provides just a simple overview of some of the tools that you could use in each of the five phases. IDEO and the Luma Institute are also great options for both formal instruction as well as just kind of free-form content. And then I would say, if you haven't read Mindset by Carol Dweck, it's not necessarily like a traditional design thinking book, but it's about operating in that growth versus fixed mindset. And so I think that it's a nice compliment. Right, you're clearly on top of this. <laughs> I'm a nerd. <laughs> so, 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 and then, and you just this is new to you. I mean, you're four years deep, and I mean, it sounds like obviously something that's stuck, something that you're really passionate about, and it sounds like you've also had some pretty good wins using this way of thinking. So, I will admit, I am a content seeker and a content sharer, and so I usually read about a book a week or so, and this has just been a really, I'll say, applicable topic in both my work and personal life. And so, yeah, I've gotten a lot of value out of it. What's the best advice somebody ever gave you? And it could be professional or or personal. My grandfather told me, don't ever take a job for the paycheck or the title. He really encouraged me to find work that I love and that I feel good at and that the other things would follow. And I'm really grateful that I received that advice at the beginning of my career because I think that fancy titles and pay are tempting, particularly when we're young. And I've taken 
a couple of steps back on paper throughout my career and always ended up ahead in the long run and doing work that I love. Can you expand on that? Because I, I think that is something that so few people do. And I actually just had somebody who's really interesting. Her name's Dr. Dawn Graham. And if anyone who does not know who she is, I'd highly check it. I'd recommend that people check her out. She teaches at Wharton and their MBA programs. And she's also very well known on like job transitioning. And that was a big thing that she talked about, the importance of doing that when you transition to not take it necessarily for money, but it's, it's okay to take one step back to move two steps forward, something that she's a huge believer in. So I'd love to hear if you're able to share, knowing that you went into that, knowing that, and what did you have to think about? What did you have to give up, I guess, or sacrifice, which is, I look at sacrifices, giving up something of a lesser nature to gain something of a greater nature. So when I was leaving the fintech organization and going over to Green Path Financial Wellness, I was a VP, I'm trying to think what I was, VP of HR, I think, with the fintech organization. And Green Path was hiring a director of HR. And I remember, it was my late 20s when I was making that change. And I remember feeling like really panicked around, oh my gosh, what are recruiters going to think of that, right? If they look at my resume down the road, why would they, why would I take a director role when I was at the VP level? It was the same job, right? It was just in a different organization. Right? And I remember having so much just panic around that and realizing that, gosh, it's so silly, right? The opportunity, you know, if I took the title off the table and just looked at the job was incredibly exciting to me and was going to challenge me in new and different ways and give me exposure to things that I hadn't done before. And so it was like, gosh, Danielle, like, get over yourself, right? Let go of the title. Um, and... I'm so grateful that I took that job and I ended up moving into a chief talent officer role down the road and got to take on so many different new and exciting things that if I had gotten stuck on making sure that I had that VP title, you know, so. It's good, a good experience and that's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, a big fan of quotes. I feel like they just do so much. They encapsulate whether it's a point you're trying to get across or a mood or I don't know what, it's just, they just speak to me. And um, I love asking people about quotes that I like to get your perspective. So I, I want to read you one and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective. Ready? I'm ready. How you do anything is how you do everything. Mm, I love this. It reminds me of my dad. He always used to tell me that there are parts of every job that I'm not going to love. And as long as they were just part and not the whole, I should give it everything that I had. And I've always translated that just into a really strong workup. There are parts of my job, of any job that I don't love, but it doesn't mean that they deserve less of me. So I guess I probably shouldn't admit it, but benefits are a great example of this for me. I don't get a whole lot of energy from designing benefit plans, even though we spent 10 minutes talking about it today. <laughs> it's high reviewing the experience ratings and excruciating detail, pushing brokers to negotiate rates. Like it's just not stuff I get energy from, but I do know how much benefit offerings can mean to an individual or a family. And so I power through and I show up as strong as I possibly can. I'm responsible for recognizing that my voice matters and that it needs to represent more than my individual passion or interest. Wow, that's great. Sounds like you've had some good family advice. Yeah, they're good peeps. I like answer. That's good. What have I not asked you, whether it's about design thinking or just in general, that you would have asked had you been interviewing yourself, if you're able to follow that? <laughs> I did follow. <laughs> uh, 
thinking. I think you did a good job. Okay. Well, it's a beautiful thing. I just, this, I think this is such a fascinating topic. Any reason why more, or is this just very new, or is there any reason that lots of other organizations aren't necessarily implementing design thinking? Is it a cultural, is it a, is it an organizational cultural thing, or is it individual? So I think you'll find that design thinking probably lives in a lot of organizations, but not necessarily in the HR function. So design thinking has been around for a long time and product teams, marketing teams are using it to get to know their external user all day long. It's relatively new in the HR space, which is actually kind of ironic because we're all about the human. So putting the human at the center shouldn't seem foreign to us. But I think that, yeah, it's a discipline that's existed in other parts of the organization. But I think that we're starting to see it come into HR more, which is amazing. Yeah, so more along like the consulting organizations, they're the ones that you think are utilizing this? Yeah, I mean, I think the parts of the business that are focused on the external customer are using a lot of design thinking. And there's no reason that we can't take best practices in how we uh, treat our external customer and look at our internal customers. I agree. Well, this has been great. This has been insightful. This has been fun. And uh, I really appreciate you carving out your time to uh, edify us all. Well, thank you for having me for the invitation. I'm just so grateful that we connected. So another shout out to Tina Marie. All right. (laughs) Tina Marie, (laughs) lots of (laughs) airtime. Make it a great day. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.